you're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition. And it lies between the pit of one's fears and the summit of one's knowledge. You are now traveling through a dimension of imagination. You just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is one man's examination of the Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer. Each podcast, I share my first impressions, analysis, and overall thoughts on Rod Serling's iconic series, one episode at a time. However, in this bonus episode series, I'll be reviewing the 2019 Twilight Zone reboot produced by Jordan Peele and Simon Kinberg and hosted by Jordan Peele. Um, you can find more of Anthology as well as a full episode archive at anthologypod.com. And if you want to contact me, you can use the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod. Tweet me at ovanthologypod or send an email to matt at obsessiveviewer.com. Um, yeah, so today I'll be discussing The Comedian. It's the first episode of the Twilight Zone's first season, and it premiered on April 1st, 2019 on CBS All Access. And for those of you who are tuning in just for this bonus review series, I just want to take a second to just mention that this podcast includes uh, bon- or regular episodes reviewing the original series, as well as bonus episode review series covering modern anthology science fiction shows like Black Mirror, Dimension 404, uh, soon to be covering Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams. So there's a lot of content out there on this feed, so um, I encourage you to check out some of my other work. So, yeah, as I said, we're going to be talking about The Comedian today. Um, It's very exciting. (laughs) This whole thing is really exciting because this is the first episode of this new Twilight Zone reboot, revival, whatever you want to call it. Um, it's, It's a big day. I'm recording this April 1st. And I've watched The Comedian a couple of times. I've taken my notes and everything. I'm prepared. Um, it's just a very exciting time. If you can kind of put a pulse on the uh, – or put put your finger on the pulse of the Twilight Zone fans, uh, it's an exciting day. It's really exciting, and um, I'm so pleased to be part of it. Uh, to an extent, because the entire concept of this podcast is I'm watching the original Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer, and I'm almost at the end of season two of a five-season show, so I feel like I'm kind of just... I don't I don't want to say that I feel like I'm tangential to the fandom, because I have watched enough Twilight Zone to know that this is clearly one of my favorite shows now. Like, it is just all... Like it's it's incredible. I love it, and I love talking about it, and I love watching it and uh, dissecting it in my own my own uh, unique way. So knowing that now there is a new Twilight Zone, and there are new fans that are going to come to the show, and maybe new fans that will come come and watch the original is so exciting and so like it's just it's so uh exciting i guess like i don't really have another word for it um it's just it's just really uh an exciting time to be a fan of the twilight zone and of science fiction in general um it's just it's i'm i'm so excited to talk about the show so anyway uh the comedian <laughs> Uh, let's go ahead and dive in. The plot summary, courtesy of IMDb. Um, usually I do long-winded, uh, plot summaries d- detailing the entire plot, but with these current shows like Black Mirror and Dimension 404, my bonus episode review series, essentially, um, I just basically do like the IMDb plot summary, just kind of make it, make it simpler since they're current and, and people can access them a little better. So, plot summary for The Comedian, courtesy of IMDb, is taking advice from a famous comedian, a stand-up comic makes fun of his own life with unexpected results. This episode stars Kumail Nanjiani as Samir Wasan. Uh, of course, Kumail Nanjiani is a very notable stand-up comedian. He is known for uh, his role in Silicon Valley, 
and he is an Oscar winner for uh, best original screenplay for The Big Sick from a couple years ago. The Big Sick was one of it. It is one of my favorite romantic comedies, and it was one of my favorite movies of the year that it was released. I think it was 2017. Um, fantastic, fantastic movie, and it's based on his real life love story with his wife Emily Gordon, and they co-wrote it together. So. He's also an X-Files aficionado, and he's a video game uh, player. <laughs> he and his wife had a podcast called The Indoor Kids. Um, and I think, I want to say he had a, an X-Files podcast, but I didn't follow it. So anyway, uh, co-starring in this episode as J.C. Wheeler is Tracy Morgan. Obviously, he's known from SNL and 30 Rock, and he's currently on The Last OG uh, also in this episode is Amara Karen as Rena. Uh, she's known for the Darjeeling Limited and the God Complex episode of Doctor Who from Matt Smith's run. And she was also in A Fantastic Fear of Everything and the HBO Limited series The Night Of. Writer for this episode is Alex Rubens, who is also a producer on the show. He was a staff writer for Community, which was one of my favorite uh, sitcoms when it was on. Uh, he was also a writer for 33 episodes of Key and Peele, and uh, wrote. he's credited as writing one episode of Rick and Morty and one episode of Big Mouth. And he also co-wrote the screenplay for Keanu, the movie uh, with P- Key and Peele, uh, with a, uh, where they... Where they search for Jordan Peele's cat. It's a really, it's a fun movie. Um, yeah. And then director for this episode is Owen Harris, who also directed two episodes of black mirror. He directed be right back from, I believe it was season two and season three or four. Um, uh, uh, yeah. Season three's San Junipero. I think it was season three. Yeah. Um, anyway, <laughs> he's also attached to an adaptation of uh, Brave New World, which was uh, is only announced, so I don't know what stage it's in, in terms of production. All right, so let's dive right into The Comedian, shall we? Uh, first, before I actually get into my review, I just want to note that I don't know if this was an, an intentional homage or not, but the title of The Comedian... Um, is a nice kind of homage to Serling's Playhouse 90 teleplay titled The Comedian, starring Mickey Rourke, uh, that I reviewed back in episode 30 of the podcast as a bonus ep- or a bonus review um, for, I think, the episode of The Twilight Zone, The Mighty Casey. And it's worth noting that The Comedian uh, won Rod Serling an Emmy in 1958. So the episode opens with Samir doing his stand-up, uh, this recurring bit that kind of recurs throughout the episode of, of him talking about the Second Amendment, um, I actually really like that as a piece of comedy. <laughs> um, it's, it's a nice, like, political statement that, uh, it, it, it tracks and I, I like it a lot. Um, and I kind of feel like the episode as a whole, is kind of making a commentary on how tired we are of politics. Uh, we only want to be entertained and not to think, which kind of flies in. It's kind of, it's kind of counter to what the twilight zone itself is. And I feel like that makes this a strong opening episode for the series because it is about how someone is not engaging in thoughtful, um, discourse and instead is just going for the lowest common denominator, trying like digging, digging a hole for himself um, instead of being thought-provoking and innovative and everything. And uh, this is kind of explored with Samir's kind of philosophy in his debate with, um, well, with both Dee Dee and with JC uh, after his set. He says that if you don't, if you don't make people think your comedy doesn't really matter. And kind of in that, that line itself kind of feels like a concise uh, sum summary of maybe the idea of key and peel in general key and peel was a fantastic sketch sketch comedy show and it did a lot of really interesting things with current events and, and politics and everything um so through this conversation with Didi, uh we get the kind of introduction of this friendly rival rivalry between the two of them it starts out kind of fun and cheeky and then obviously kind of devolves into something a little darker by the end of the episode but we get through context of their conversation that this other comedian joe donner had murdered people and we don't get um we don't get context for that until later and it's something that that that's something that is kind of um 
a uh, a criticism I have of the episode as a whole, which I'll get to later when it kind of makes a bigger uh, resurgence in in my review. But there are a couple of times in this episode where we don't get the context of what they're saying. Um, and it's not necessarily that we necessarily need the context, but what they give us in terms of information doesn't feel like it's enough to really satisfy our curiosity. It seems it's more like building toward, um, a little bit of a mystery that isn't really needed. Like the whole thing with, uh, Joe Donner, uh, them saying that he murdered people and then the jury didn't convict him or, or the justice system was, was, uh, negligent with it. Um, that kind of just feels like it's, it's too enticing of, of a, of a thread to lay dangling for us. Um, especially when it doesn't really factor in like directly into the plot. It's just a setup for, um, Samir using it to erase him, which I guess makes sense because we don't need that front loaded at the beginning of saying like, Oh, he was, he was drunk. He killed a mother and his, and her baby. um, so later we can erase him and everything. The shock of that is kind of comes out later. So I can understand where it's coming from. It's just, it kind of threw me for a loop when it's introduced that like, Oh, this Joe Donner guy murdered people. <laughs> um, just the phrasing of it's like, Oh, okay, well this is, this is something that they're putting a pin in that they pro- should probably elaborate on here pretty soon. So, uh, then Samir meets JC Wheeler and it's kind of implied through the, uh, dialogue and everything that JC Wheeler is this legend in comedy and it's revealed that he had it all and then he just disappeared. And he and Samir have this conversation and he tells Samir like, well, fuck politics. The audience doesn't care what you think. They care about you. And in this, in this setup, this, this kind of, uh, this dialogue between the two of them, I really like the debate about comedy. Like Samir is this idealistic, uh, comic who has this very well-intentioned, view of art and he uses like he his view is the right one for my taste obviously and for the taste of the twilight zone itself his viewpoint is that you have a voice you need to say something um relevant and thought-provoking in order to get the maximum use of that voice in that spotlight that you have um but the kind of a uh, viewpoint that uh in the in the realm of this episode the twilight zone the viewpoint that he has just isn't marketable so th- that introduces the kind of uh supernatural element of this episode jc uh gives him like some advice and clinks his glass and suddenly samir kills on stage by using his personal life and personal influence um or personal stories from his life it's this whole concept of kind of bleeding for your art. Maybe not bleeding per se, but Samir is selling out and he's wielding this power by selling out. Like he's he's selling out people in his life in order to gain fame and everything. And I feel like that is a very interesting um, allegory to draw from this episode. And he has the line where it's kind of like his... The, the nail in his coffin, as it were, says you don't choose comedy because you want a fine life. You choose comedy because you want it all, uh, which also kind of struck me as a little weird because I don't <laughs> I mean, stand up. Com- I get I get that kind of feel like, OK, stand up comics want the limelight. They want to be uh, the next Mitch Hedberg or they want to be the next big uh, stand up comic who gets like deals. They want to be the next Seinfeld. I get that and everything, but I feel like the the realm of stand-up comedy, like the the world, that industry is very unforgiving and isn't like, I feel like, I don't know. I kind of feel like people, like the idea that people go into stand-up comedy seeking fame and fortune uh, seems like more of a, more of kind of a, an allegory for like acting or something. Like, I feel like there's not, um, I don't know. I don't know. I just feel like there's not much star chasing for stand-up comedy, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But anyway, so Joe Donner, uh, the murderer at this point, uh, is kind of a total just garbage person. <laughs> um, he burps into the microphone and blows into it uh, right before Samir goes on. So it's just kind of like this. It's kind of an interesting um, juxtaposition against Samir's kind of playful uh, rivalry with Didi, where like his... I don't know if I'd call it a rivalry with Joe Donner, but his, um, 
relationship with Joe Donner is a lot more malicious and uh, like not good intentioned. Um, so his first set after he speaks to JC and is imparted this gift from the Twilight Zone is about his dog. Um, he notices that his Second Amendment joke isn't necessarily killing it, so he brings up his dog and that gets just uproarious applause from, from the, from the, uh, from the audience. And they're, they're laughing. It's just, they're eating it up. And, um, I kind of, I, I like that the, again, this whole concept of Samir using his real life for material only to have every reference he uses completely erased from his life and existence. Um, I like that a lot. I like it as an allegory for alienating those closest to you in pursuit of fame and limelight. Like it's a very easy allegory to draw. And it's, I think that's intentional, um, because you just have to, you have to be, um, in order to seek fame and fortune, you have to be vicious. And it's kind of a common, I wouldn't even necessarily say trope because it's not necessarily tropish or anything. And I feel like there's a negative connotation to that, but it's more a resilient kind of idea of celebrity. And it's a resilient byproduct. Like it's something that we know as people who, um, view entertainment. We know that there is this whole other kind of malicious world that is going on under the surface that people are just, it's a cut cutthroat industry to become famous and a celebrity. And this episode kind of demonstrates how that cutthroat, uh, cutthroat, um, positioning is, uh, is something that is, uh, very prevalent. And so at this point, after his first set, we get the, where it's revealed that the dog has disappeared. And I, I've got to admit my ignorance here because I really thought for us, for, um, a considerable amount of time, <laughs> um, I really thought that the disappearance of the dog, I thought that that was the price that, uh, he paid for JC's influence. Um, because there's the whole scene with, with him and JC where he's talking, he mentions the dog and he says like, Oh, I'll give you anything for fame. I'll give you my dog. I kind of thought the whole episode was going to be about JC stealing his dog or having his dog. I, I really thought that, um, yeah, I'm so glad that that wasn't the case. And I was very happy with the direction that the episode took. But after he realizes that the dog is gone and Rena, his girlfriend is just kind of sleeping and kind of in a daze. Um, we get the Jordan Peele narration and his, his, the first Jordan Peele narration for this Twilight Zone. And he mentions that Samir was an artist of great principle and what he is going to learn, um, he's going to learn, like, he's going to have to make a choice about what he has to give when the laughter stops and how much he's willing to give to the Twilight Zone. And I thought it was a good narration. Um, I like the, kind of wording of it. Like it's not, I mean, it's not Serling level wording and everything, but it would be just kind of a mistake to compare any new iteration to, to the old one. But, um, I like it. It's engaging. It's very, um, in keeping with the tone, uh, set forth by Serling in the original series. And I think that kind of Jordan Peele's demeanor and his tone of voice uh, fits perfectly with with the spirit of the Twilight Zone, which I feel like is something that I'm going to be saying a lot in these reviews, hopefully, um, at least judging from the first two episodes. So um, I want to make a note or take a uh, mention uh, about the opening theme. Um, I like it's, I mean, it's the Twilight Zone. It's, it's great. It's fantastic. And I like that it's kind of taking the modern Star Trek approach. Um, it's like it replaces the, the line of, uh, the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge with a more gender neutral, uh, the pit of one's fears and the summit of one's knowledge. Um, I respect that. Um, like I said, it's kind of a Star Trek kind of thing because in, I think it was when J.J. Abrams brought back Star Trek, he uh, replaced Where No Man Has Gone Before with Where No One Has Gone Before. And uh, really, honestly, it's one of the reasons why I love science fiction. Um, it's because of its progressive themes, and that's a nice uh, kind of update to um, to something from the past, I guess. 
So after the opening credits, we get uh, the title card, which I, I like that they do that. It's it's fine. Um, and then we get the introduction of Devin, which is Samir's nephew uh, or uh, Rena's nephew who, uh, you know, is staying with him and Samir. And I like the the scene with uh, Devin and Dee Dee. I think it's really funny. And I just I like the shit that he gives to Samir and how they kind of pile on. It's kind of a fun back and forth. And it kind of reinforces this um First of all, it reinforces his status in the com- uh, stand-up comedy world, and it also reinforces the kind of playful rivalry that Didi and Samir have, and this friendship that they have through a professional um, setting <laughs> that is kind of tongue-in-cheek, but a little bit a little bit vicious here and there. So his second time going up on stage, he doesn't realize that the fact that he mentions the dog is what. Uh, erases the dog from existence so and also i kind of felt like that was a little bit i don't know if i'd say a stretch but it was kind of peculiar because um he's like him and devin are putting up posters like missing dog posters and like that's cool and everything but he's like it's so weird i had to i had to google uh the breed because i couldn't find a picture of the dog anywhere and i know i've taken uh hundreds of pictures of the dog and i was just like that that's where i kind of had to kind of stop myself just or uh, it didn't necessarily take me out of it. it this is a nitpick if there ever was one but i was just like okay that's that's kind of a weird way to breeze through this extremely abnormal abnormal uh thing um in the context of this world because and i kind of think of it as myself i have a cat um the official mascot of obsessive viewer podcasts uh pizza roll and i have literally thousands of pictures of pizza uh, on my phone, like literally like upwards of 4,000 pictures. Um, it's ridiculous. And I kind of feel like if you can't fi- like that, like not finding any pictures of the, of the dog is going to like send, like send you off the deep end, I think. Um, but that's neither here nor there. Like I said, that's a nitpick. That's not a valid criticism of the episode. So let's move past that. So when he goes on stage for his second act, he starts talking about Devin. And I actually like that bit as, as as far as stand up comedy is concerned, it's genuinely funny and plays up this self uh, this self deprecation that was uh, prevalent earlier in the uh, in the scene with Dee Dee and uh, and Devin. I just really like that piece of comedy. And then once he realizes uh, that, like after he gets the applause and the, and the punchlines and everything, uh, we see a shot of the audience where Devin was sitting and he's gone. And that is the moment where this episode really hooked me and took off for me. Um, it is such a cool concept for this story to have, uh, the, the comedian, the titular comedian basically using his life to uh to breathe life into his act while also erasing parts of his life entirely from existence um it is such a cool concept and it feels like it's super in keeping with the spirit of the original twilight zone like it's very much a twilight zone story and i i love it for that um so following that he has this panic panic driven search for devin he in that feels really real and authentic um because he's a 10 year old kid and he just disappeared like he does not he does not know where this kid is so he's panicking he's he's kind of running across uh the street and trying to call devin and we see the uh bus stop in with the uh caution tape and everything um that's going to come into play later but the panic of losing devin it feels real and and genuine and then he uses the voice recognition uh to call devin and in that moment it kind of felt like the episode was playing into the black mirror crowd to an extent um i'll just kind of leave that there i won't expand on that because there's something later in the episode that i'll i'll expand on that thought but just kind of keep in mind here when he uses the voice recognition it kind of feels like it's showing off the modern era of technology and i kind of feel like that was maybe um a conscious effort uh to kind of play into the black mirror crowd that's going to be seeing the twilight zone so anyway so samir comes home and that's when we're introduced to david and i honestly struggled a 
a little bit here because at this point we're introduced to the concept that uh, that when he does stand up and uses something from his real life, it is basically erasing whatever he uses from his life. So that is affecting change within his life. We're established that the dog has disappeared and the dog disappearing means that the dog never existed. So they never had a dog and Rena is confused by that uh, when he brings up the dog. So it's, it's a very well-defined clear situation that's going on. So when Samir erases Devin and he comes home and there's this guy that's having wine with Rena, I struggled with that a little bit because that, that relationship between, um, between David and Rena wasn't well defined. Like we don't even know that she is a lawyer and that he was her mentor. Um, until much later in the episode. And when Samir comes home and we see David and, and Rena drinking wine in a story where Samir's world is changing with each stand up comedy set he does, I really thought that maybe David was like, maybe David, maybe, maybe the set that he did where he erased Devin also erased his relationship with Rena and that maybe David and Rena were the couple and maybe he was just a neighbor or roommate or something. And I got kind of confused by that for just a brief moment. And I kind of wish that there was more context given to who David was, um, in that opening scene because we don't, like I said, we don't get the context for that until later. And I feel like that was a little bit of a problem with the, with the pacing and overall writing of the episode, but it's a minor complaint in the grand scheme of things. I will say, however, that David is immediately and aggressively annoying. <laughs> Um, and it's kind of, it's played for comedy and it's kind of this funny, funny, but irritating thing where he is intruding on, you already get the sense that he's intruded on, in their personal space by, you know, drinking wine with, with Rena and it just seems more intimate than it should be. And then he is intruding on their private conversation and, and like kind of, you know, kind of forcing his way into it. Um, and also kind of giving backhanded compliments about stand-up comedy, like saying that art is one of the most uh, noble things you can do, but it doesn't pay the rent or something to that effect. And it's just, it's really off-putting and it's intentionally, intentionally so. So I kind of appreciated that. But again, I didn't have the context of who the hell he was until later. Um, so anyway, after that, um, he and he, he and Rena are in the bathroom and they're talking and, and she's giving him the advice to really run with it if he, if he's found his niche with stand up comedy and his, the thing that he can really use to, um, to find the success that he's wanted for so long, then he should absolutely run with it and go, uh, go for it. And it's a supportive thing. She doesn't understand the extent of which that is all happening. Um, so I can totally understand, uh, like I, I like that di dynamic, uh, that was present in this, uh, episode. So, um, and it's also worth mentioning that not only does he erase Devin from existence, but he makes, um, he makes Rena's sister barren essentially. Um, because she said, like Rena says that, you know, uh, her sister can't have kids. So him mentioning that she has a kid and they have like, they have a nephew, um, is a really messed up joke because she can't have kids. And it's kind of an interesting thing. Like it's, it's an interesting way that the episode kind of toys with this idea that his erasing people from the world is causing this, uh, this kind of negative side effect. Um, it's, it's a concept that wasn't explored further than that at all. Uh, but I feel like there was, there was a little bit of a taste of that. And I kind of, I don't necessarily wish that it would have been explored more, but I kind of think that like that dangling, like idea thread could have been explored a little more fully, but in an episode that's already, I mean, this episode is 55 minutes long. It's already, it already has a ton of stuff going on. So we didn't necessarily need, that to be expanded. I just feel like that's, that's kind of a, uh, maybe not necessarily subplot because I don't think it would go as deep as that, but it's this narrative thread that doesn't really get picked up at all. So, uh, after the scene where she's being supportive and everything, um, we get the next set. And before that, we see the, the, uh, shots of the, uh, bus stop where we have the, uh, the stuffed animals, like a, a vigil, um, and the caution tape around it. So it's obvious that there was an accident. 
people died and it's going to come into play. I really, really love the visual flair of this episode and the shots of the bus stop are shot in such a way that it makes it feel real and foreboding. It's almost like a documentary style um, shot where they're showing close-ups of different pieces of the bus stop, like the visual, the vigil and the, the caution tape. It kind of really feels like this documentary style thing. Like we're about to get information about what happened here. And I think that it plays really well, um, in terms of a visual flair for the episode. And so, uh, we get Samir's third set. And in this set, he erases Joe. Um, I like that the audience doesn't react to the nephew. Like he, Samir starts off with his, his standard opener, <laughs> um, the second amendment bit. And then he, he tries to recreate what happened in his previous bit by talking about his nephew, but the audience doesn't react at all. And he, he kind of murmurs that it's because I don't have a nephew anymore. Um, and it's it's because so so like the reason that they don't react to him talking about his nephew is that he doesn't have a nephew so it's no longer pulling from Samir's real life but on a deeper level the audience itself has already taken the nephew and it's hungry for Samir to feed it more of his life and i think that that is such a such a rich narrative uh structure for this for this episode and it's very much again in keeping with the twilight zone <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's, I think, I think that's such an intriguing concept, uh, again. Um, and I like that he pivots from that to, uh, talking about the president. Um, and it's kind of like he's trying to use this newfound power for good. And he is, he's like saying that I'm not saying that the president is this fascist dickhead who needs to be strung up by his balls. Uh, but come on. <laughs> And it's funny because like it's 2019. He doesn't say Trump, but I mean, come on, it's it's Trump, guys. <laughs> and uh, I, I I liked that dig quite a bit. And I also like that Samir then realizes that the power doesn't work for that context because he doesn't know the president personally. Like he's not friends with the president, and it's not he's not um, he's not pulling from his real life for the set. So the audience is not going to grab it and erase the president from the world. Um, and I like this because this is, this is Samir testing the waters. He's getting a taste for what he can do. Um, he, and it's kind of a morbid kind of thing because he's no longer concerned about, like, he's made peace with the fact that he just erased this 10 year old kid from existence from the entire, like, the, this kid never existed. Like, he has made his peace with that. And it's, it's kind of amazing to me. And it kind of speaks to his character that he, can erase this kid who he has a personal relationship with and is, is like friends with, like he has this, he has this established relationship with this kid and then he's fine with it. Like he's, cause it's all in pursuit of fame and what he's always wanted. So noticing that bringing up the president doesn't work. Samir turns his sights on Joe Donner. And in this case, he doesn't even need to use comedy. <laughs> um, he's just stating facts in a stand-up comedy cadence, um, while the music gr grows more and more ominous. And I love this episode for that because it's so, uh, telling that, like, this audience is only wanting this personal, like, again, it's kind of this, maybe not necessarily bleeding for, uh, his art, but it is, bleeding it, it's like bleeding other people for his art he's sacrificing other people for his art um and i i like that and it's also this kind of self-aggrandizing um or self um yeah self-aggrandizing and uh self-esteem booster that he like rationalizes it by saying that like after the set those people come up to him on the street and say like hey you killed tonight this is great i'm gonna follow you on on twitter and everything and then he's like he's like samir is so pleased with himself and he's like i actually unkilled two people um and one of them was a baby like it's such a such a an egotistical kind of kind of thing that grows throughout the episode and i, I really appreciated it for that so after the, uh, what I assume is an act break, I'm paying for CBS All Access with no commercials, so I don't know if that's necessarily an act break or what, but he starts looking into his past through social media and he goes, like he's scribbling down notes and names and everything and 
he goes on what can only be described as a massacre of people from his past. It's this totally vindictive thing. He's a judge, jury, and executioner. And it's just showing that his selfish tendencies and this egotistical God complex is being developed within him. And it's also ultimately going to, you know, reach a crescendo later in the episode. But after all that, the, the kind of juxtaposition of him basically erasing mass amounts of people, uh, from his personal life and in his personal history, he and Rena are having this very romantic and, and sweet, uh, maybe not very romantic. They're just eating pizza off of a truck, but, um, this kind of sweet, tender moment where they're, you know, chatting about, you know, very dark topic of, uh, coach, uh, Keller, I believe, um, where coach Keller, where he, you know, was a predator and everything. And, I, I, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting, it's a sweet moment after that because, uh, Samir says that there's a lot of loathsome psychopaths in, in the world. And Rena says, well, thank God you're not a loathsome psychopath, which obviously is, you know, foreshadowing. But, um, then we go into this sweet montage or interlude or whatever you want to call it of Samir and Rena, like on the bus and, and they're, and then they're kind of dancing in their, in their apartment. And the music is just so sweet. And like, I love the music in the sequence. It's just so sweet and everything. Um, and then we see him crossing names off of the list in his notebook. And that's where it felt just a little bit disturbing. And it's, it's where it was kind of the, maybe not the tipping point of the episode, but it was the moment where it's like, okay, this is too much power for one person to yield. And he is, then, uh, after that is when we get the argument about David. It's where it's, and it's comes up so, I don't want to say organically, but it comes up so naturally, which I guess is a synonym. But anyway, um, so they have this argument about David that comes up when, um, when, uh, when Samir, like, says that he's, and he admits that it's a selfish and delusional kind of, uh, narcissistic kind of idea that he feels like he can do good with his comedy. And she agrees, like, yeah, it's, you know, selfish and narcissistic and everything. And then he asks, like, hey, what was the name of that person that you defended, um, who you later found out was, like, an actual murderer? And this is the moment where, where uh, uh, two things happen. One, they get into an argument about David. And two is, that's when we kind of learn that she's a lawyer and that David is her, her mentor and that that's where, that's what the level of their relationship is, is that he is a mentor. She's a mentee. And, uh, Samir has this like latent, uh, jealousy toward that relationship. And he thinks that David is trying to have sex with, with Rena and trying to manipulate her, um, and seduce her. And like, he has this jealousy toward him and they get in this big fight and then she leaves, um, and I, I don't know. It just, it just feels weird that we're just now getting context to an earlier scene this late in the episode. Um, so that I like, that's my, probably my biggest criticism for this episode is the kind of weird, uh, um, uh, context given, uh, like in the pacing, I guess. So after that, he's on the bus and we see a tattooed skinhead sit down and then, it immediately jumps to his fourth set that we see. And it feels like the reason for this not working is because the skinhead wasn't either wasn't a part of his life or gave him a fake name. Like that's something that he, uh, that he says on set is like when he realizes that it doesn't work, he says like, maybe he gave me a fake name. And I feel like that, I mean, I kind of wish that that was a little more, uh, little more detailed, I guess. Like we don't see him interact with the guy. So I don't like, I have no idea if that, that actually happened um or if he was just kind of testing the waters again and trying to see because it just seems weird like he's like okay this guy just like came out and said that he was a murderer like he admitted to being a murderer and like it's i guess it's a funny bit but it's also like i kind of wish we would have seen that (laughs) um and i want to say maybe it got cut for time and i mean this isn't all this is already a long episode but i kind of feel like we kind of need that context and everything like like that kind of feels like that may have been an important scene to cut i do want to mention though that um i kind of wondered he mentions that that the that the guy said that his name was buck and i kind of wonder if that's a reference to buck houghton from the original twilight zone um so i don't i don't know if that was conscious or not but i that's kind of what uh i thought 
So with that not working, he pivots into a bit about David. And I like how eerie and just all around off the laughter feels from the audience. It's just a really crazy kind of demented, um, lustful, like applause and laughter. And you see Rena in the audience laughing maniacally at it as well. And it's just such a, such a disturbing kind of, kind of reaction. And I think that that really plays in well to the whole, uh, idea of the episode and the, and the way that it, uh, the events are unfolding. And I also appreciated the Me Too reference, uh, how he mentions that he, like, uh, he says something to the effect of, like, like your girlfriend is gonna get Me Tooed by this fucking, uh, misogynistic guy or, or this, uh, 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 I don't remember exactly what he said, but anyway, I, I thought the Me Too reference was, was, uh, poignant. And so after that, we get more of Didi and Samir's kind of playful rivalry, and it's, it's just really great. Like, that, like that uh rivalry is is fun and it also kind of um showcases how Samir has so many different things in his life that have different levels of i guess animosity toward him um like he had like okay Joe Donner was just an outright dickhead and uh he has trouble with David and his relationship with with Rena but he's more like sleazy about that. Like that, like that, that animosity toward David is because David is more sleazy and it's more about Samir's jealousy than anything else or anything concrete rather. But then his relationship with Didi is playful, but also adversarial because they are both competing, um, in the same industry and in, in the same comedy club. So they have this rivalry, but they're somewhat supportive in their own, like, backhanded ways. And so, like, you have this well-realized kind of grouping of, of characters that kind of inform different aspects of his life and two different levels of animosity. And as he, at the deeper he gets into his power and this lust for fame that he's pursuing, the more concessions that he's willing to make. And that kind of comes to a head later in the episode. Um, but before we get to all that, we get the fallout of Samir erasing David. And I thought that that was just extreme and exquisite. Um, because Samir erased David from existence because he doesn't want him near his girlfriend. Rena is now no longer a lawyer. She's just a, a waitress at a diner and they don't have, the relationship that they had before. Like it is a fragile relationship they reference. And again, this is another problem with the episode kind of referencing something when it's needed rather than seeding it earlier. But when they're having the argument in the diner, he mentions that, Oh, you're not wearing your red coat. The one that we got in Paris that in that trip saved our relationship. And that like, that kind of comes out of nowhere. Like, I don't know what, what the hell he's talking about. And clearly neither does she because it didn't really happen. And he's kind of realizing in his own exposition-y way that like, Oh shit, we didn't go to Paris. We didn't salvage the relationship the way it was. We're more fragile. And, and now because of me, she's not a lawyer. She's just been waiting her whole life. Like she's been waiting our life for me to achieve my achieve my goals and she's kind of put her dreams on in the back seat so like all of that is just kind of coming at us really quickly and then the actual uh relationship between rena and samir just completely dissolves and is ended and i like that um i like the scene i like the acting in the scene i have my qualms which i mentioned about the writing and everything but i like the acting in the scene kumail nanjiani and um Amara, Karen are fantastic in that scene. I thought that, that was really good. So after that, we get what is maybe one of my vi favorite visual scenes of, uh, of the episode. It's where he goes back to their apartment. And I love the way that this set is lit. Um, he's in the apartment. It's dark, but the, you see interior lights, but the interior lights aren't showing enough light in the apartment. Rather, the, the light that is really, um, like like the interior lights aren't shining that brightly but instead the room is illuminated by the light from the street and the light from the street is inconsistent and it's uh it's like you know headlight lights so it's moving in interesting ways and it's just as the camera is spinning around um it gives this kind of 
uh, it complements the kind of visual context of the camera moving around and kind of gives a sense of chaos to the situation um, that I feel is just really naturally done. I, I think that that's just visually astounding. I, I loved it. Um, and that's when, you know, Samir throws his notebook and then he goes back to the club and he has a conversation with, uh, with Didi again, which I, I really like this, this back and forth. Like, I love the, the line where Didi says, uh, Samir, if you go on a murder rampage, can you not do it while I'm here? And I'm not saying that because you're brown, but, because you're a man sort of like i just i love that pause when she says sort of and it's just i don't know i love the layers to that insult it's just it's just a really well done thing so then uh a a really well done piece of comedy in that uh scene so after that we get the setup that the that this gower hour show which i think is just a stand-in for um for saturday night live um they are there and they're going to pick either Didi or Samir uh, to be on the show. And it's going to be their big break and everything. And so um, then we get the fifth set. So it's established that the Gower Hour people are going to be there for the late show, uh, for the late set. And then Samir has an earlier set in which he erases the head fund or hedge fund investors and um, I like that. I, I thought it was fine. Um, I like the way that it evolves his kind of anger and it's, it's a byproduct of his anger at losing his relationship and losing what, like, like what he did to Rena by accident is what I feel informs his decision to go after the hedge fund investors. Cause he just wants, like, it's, it's this interesting kind of thing inside him where part of him just wants to be, uh, wants this fame he's been seeking and everything. And then he's just so pissed off at what he's done and what he's, what he's done to someone that he cares for that he's just going to go after people that are heckling him. And so the hedge fund investors, they start heckling him and then he calls them out and, uh, or before, before they start heckling him, he realizes that what he's saying isn't going to work. So he says the line, oh, that's right, you need fresh blood. And I, I love that line. I just think that that's so telling for uh, the relationship between Samir and the audience. And it kind of comments on the relationship between a performer and their audience as well. Um, yeah, so then that's when the hedge fund investors heckle him. And like the, <laughs> the show does not make it easy uh, to care about them like like it makes it very easy for us to just want them out of the picture um because they are just despicable people they're so douchey and shitty people um that samir just uh you can feel his blood boiling and it's kind of a big turn for the character where he actually is targeting someone to uh, to a race because he's satisfying not only the bloodlust of the audience but this bloodlust within him that's born out of this anger that he's had with his situation and what he's done. And I feel like this is a very big turning point for the character. And it leads to the question of whether or not he would be able to redeem himself or if he would just kind of succumb to, uh, to the twilight zone itself. And so I, I love the way that the, that the scene is shot when he erases the hedge fund investors, because there's this maniacal way about him um, this, the scene is shot from below and you see him pointing directly at them and he has this look on his face that's like he just doesn't care and he's just like he's doing it out of malicious intent rather than like erasing a terrible person or someone who like murdered people or anything like he's just doing it because he doesn't like them and it's this growing animosity within him that is going to be ultimately his downfall through a redemptive act. Um so after the set, he meets with Dee Dee backstage. And this was kind of a peculiar scene to me. Um, she's jealous, but complimentary. And it's just, it's this weird dynamic. Like she's prideful. She won't like he, he tries to tell her that he's not going to perform. And she's like, no, you're going to perform. Cause you know, you're good. And like, you deserve it and everything. Um, it's just, it's such, it's such a weird kind of, um, uh, kind of, kind of back and forth within her, role like she goes from from like not from being shitty with him and angry at him to like 
being proud of him and attracted to him in a weird way. It's it's such a weird dynamic. I just kind of I don't know. It just it it didn't really fit well with me or it didn't really gel with me. I do want to mention something about the set design in this scene. There's tons of signatures on the wall and I thought like I didn't recognize any of them except for Matthew Perry uh from Friends. Like it was I I don't know I it's weird. Like, it, like that's very prominent and visible, but I didn't recognize any of the other names. I just don't, I don't get that. Like why Matthew Perry is referenced in it. And I, I don't get it. But anyway, so Dee Dee says, may the baddest bitch win, which is me, by the way. <laughs> then she compliments him by saying that if she were straight, she'd sleep with him on the side while she had a relationship with a, an Idris Elba type. Um, and fine. Sure. And then she leaves and that's it. Like, Okay, again, that was kind of just a confusing, like, there's so many tonal shifts within that scene, within that character, that I just couldn't track it that well. Um, So after that, we get the kind of moment where he's alone in the, in in the, I don't know if I'd say dressing room, but the green room of the, of the club. And he sees the sign that says no apostrophes, which I realized I didn't mention earlier when Devin, his nephew, mentions that uh, they have that conversation about the, the sign because it's Eddie's comedy club that says no apostrophes. And like, that's something that didn't really make sense to me either. Like it's kind of a weird misdirect. Like the sign doesn't show up until after he meets with AC and after the, uh, or I'm sorry, after he meets with JC and after, um, the dog disappears. So I kind of, I kind of felt like maybe tearing up the sign was what summons JC back, but I don't know. It just wasn't communicated that well. So, the club owner, I think he's the club owner at least, comes in and tells him that he's almost up. And so he's like, all right, yeah, I'll be there. And then we see JC come back and he's like kind of doing his ominous Twilight zone thing. <laughs> and I did like the line where uh, where Samir is like, I wanted to be the next Chris Rock, not evil David Copperfield. I, uh, I like that. And I like the conversation between the two of them where they're talking about murder, like, uh, Samir saying that he didn't want to murder people. And then, uh, JC's like, it ain't murder if there aren't, there aren't any crying moms. Um, I thought that was an interesting rationale to what was happening. And, so after this meeting with JC in the back room of the comedy club, I kind of thought that there are two different ways that this episode could play out. Um, either he's going to erase JC Wheeler and in doing so undo everything that has happened and everything that's been erased, or he'll end up talking about himself on stage so that he will be erased and everything will go back to normal. Um, which obviously that's what happened. But anyway, you get the moment where he goes on stage and he's complimenting Dee Dee and he says like, give it up for Dee Dee. Uh, but he stops halfway through. Then he realizes like, this is the true turning point of the character. And he decides in that moment that that's when he's going to erase her. And that's when he's just going to snap. And it takes this extra effort for him to do it. And I, I really like that. I really like that they give the, give, uh, they gave him that extra effort to, to really push through that, to do something that is so malicious and like kind of evil. Um, and then after that, the kind of the, uh, the floodgates are opened and we come back after, um, after, you know, everything goes dark, uh, another act break, and he's just spouting off tons of names, and the crowd is just eating it up. And there are quick cuts between Samir and the audience. Uh, this woman falls out of her chair because she's laughing so hard, and he's just spouting off name after name after name. And this is where the episode kind of feels a little bit Black Mirror-esque. And um, I'll kind of I'll circle back and talk about what I mentioned earlier, that um, the whole thing with technology, it kind of felt like that in this scene were both kind of maybe the reason why Owen Harris was hired for this episode. Maybe that's, maybe that's too much. Maybe that, maybe that's not fair, but I kind of felt like the quick cut outburst between, uh, of emotion between Samir and the audience, it really reminded me of like the ending of the Black Mirror episode Nosedive, where it's quick cuts between, um, between the two characters just hurling insults at each other in their jail, in their jail cells, jail cells, <laughs> Jesus. And, uh, and also reminded me of the ending of 15 Million Merits, where, um, uh, Daniel Kalua's character is, is, you know, having his, his public outburst on stage. Um, and so I, I feel like that was maybe intentional. Like I have a little theory about that. Um, 
because Owen Harris did direct a couple of episodes of Black Mirror. Black Mirror. Now, to be fair, he did not direct either of those episodes particular. And this is the first episode of the new Twilight Zone. And my theory is that maybe this is all on purpose. Um, so I saw someone online on Twitter. I can't, I'm so sorry. I can't remember who exactly it was, but someone said that like they, like he lamented that the, he or she, I should say, lamented the inevitable comparisons between Black Mirror and this new version of the Twilight Zone. Like, obviously, people are going to compare them because they're both science fiction anthology shows. And I really wish I could remember who said it because he made a, he or she made a very good point. Um, they said that the Twilight Zone is supernatural and Black Mirror is totally based on technology. And so, by default, th- these two shows should not be compared because it's they're vastly different even though they are both science fiction anthology shows and black mirror has been compared ad nauseum to the twilight zone um they shouldn't be compared because they they go about their science fiction in very different ways and i totally agree with that um however we are living in a time where the biggest science fiction anthology show right now is black mirror um and i wouldn't be surprised if the producers, and this may be more cynical than I need to be, but I kind of feel like maybe it's possible that the producers of The Twilight Zone purposely made the comedian lightly reminiscent in style, just lightly, uh, to Black Mirror in order to help pull in the Black Mirror crowd who isn't too familiar with The Twilight Zone itself. Um, and I feel like this may be why the comedian is the first episode of this new show that's, that's released and also why Nightmare at 30,000 Feet is the second episode because that is a direct reference to the original Twilight Zone. And I kind of feel like the coupling of these two episodes, The Comedian and Nightmare at 30,000 Feet, I feel like releasing those two episodes together first is kind of a calculated effort from the producers and from CBS All Access because we get kind of, I don't want to say the best of both worlds, but we get the kind of Black Mirror-esque aesthetic i would say and that might be putting too fine a point on it uh but we get the kind of black mirror reminiscent bits small bits from the comedian while also immediately getting a direct reference to the original twilight zone with nightmare at 30,000 feet being a direct uh remake of nightmare at 20,000 th- uh, 20,000 feet one of the most iconic uh episodes of the twilight zone so anyway that's my little weird theory tangent thing maybe i'm completely off base but in any case i feel like it worked and if it if that is the intention i hope that that uh works well for you know the show because i hope that that brings in the black mirror crowd so going back to the episode, Samir is spewing his just names and, and just spouting everything. And he's just erasing people from, from the world. And so Rena interrupts him and, and heckles him and he, and she boos him while he's in the middle of his outburst. And right here, I love the kind of lustful hunger with which the woman says, I hear this guy kills hecklers. This is going to be good. Like it's so telling of that audience feeling that you like, you just want this outburst you want to you want to live vicariously through this performer that is just going to just destroy someone for a slight that they did toward them like it's just this really um hunger this really intense hunger that the audience feels for and i think that that's just really illustrated well in that scene um in that in that particular line so rena brings him back to reality by completely baiting him into using her in his act. She is saying that she found the notebook and saying that this is all his, his way to show that he's superior, superior to other people. And I love, I love that because that kind of sums up the dark character of Samir Wasan because he is, uh, just like that is what he is turned into and what he has become is this person that is just vindictive and he is so self-centered and self-righteous and it, he needed to be taken down a peg or seven. And he, uh, so she says like, okay, go ahead and do it. Go ahead and use me in your act. That's you only, uh, you only like people are just material for you and you go ahead and use me in your act. And so, I like that this triggers him to do this, um, this redemptive kind of thing where he 
talks about himself. And it's, I, I love this scene and I feel like it pays off the episode really well that he goes into this whole, um, this whole thing where he's describe he's describing his lust for fame and fortune, and he is just talking about how he is incredibly self centered and everything. And it's just, it, I mean, it's really somber and really dark. And the music that kind of swells up as he's going through his whole shtick is uh, really somber and just just so dark and and uh, really comes together and uh, provides a, an emotional. Uh, pull for the character to sacrifice himself in in a sense. And I love that shot after he says, ladies and gentlemen, I have been Samir Wassan. Uh, there's a shot of the mic dropping on the floor uh, on the stage. And then the camera zooms into the crowd and moves like forward into the crowd as they give him a standing ovation. And then the camera all in one fluid shot uh, pans up into the spotlight. I just, I love the way that the camera moved and, and the way that that was visualized um, in the episode. I thought that that was just beautiful. And so we get the ending where DD meets JC. Um, well, first we get, we get the reveal that, you know, Devin is back and like everything's back to normal because uh, Samir erased himself. And then we get the, I don't know, again, a kind of weird scene where Dee Dee, um, I mean, I guess it just shows that she, that Dee Dee was back too, but like we get where Rena, uh, compliments Dee Dee's set and it just kind of feels a little weird because it's like, uh, Dee Dee, like, like kind of, oh, I guess that, I guess that makes sense because Dee Dee, um, kind of, not cat calls, but kind of checks her out as, uh, as Rena leaves. And that shows, uh, that makes sense because that shows that, you know, uh, Rena, is someone who uh, Dee Dee has never met. <laughs> so then the end scene, the kind of wraparound story or wraparound device is that Dee Dee sits down, orders a drink, and then she meets J.C. Wheeler. And then the kind of cycle continues in a sense. Um, then we get Peel's closing narration. And I feel like his narration kind of sums up the episode well. And I like the writing of the narrations in this episode. I, I don't, I doubt that I I wouldn't think that Peel writes them himself. I'm sure that the episode writer probably uh, writes it. So hats off to Alex uh, Rubin. Was that right? Um, yeah, Alex Alex Rubens. So hats off to him for for good narration. And I and I love, of course, I love that the last shot of the episode is a reference to Kubrick's The Shining. Um, I, I think that that's just a beautiful icing on the cake for me, and it's something that. Like Jordan Peele specifically, uh, <laughs> Jordan Peele specifically uh, has done before and recently too. Like there's a shining reference in Us that absolutely floored me. Um, no pun intended. Um, and there's even a similar, very similar reference uh, the, uh, to The Shining, a similar reference to this reference to The Shining in a Key and Peele sketch. Um, by the way, check out. Key and Peele Continental Breakfast. It's uh it's a freaking hysterical sketch. I, I love it so much. I love being incontinent. Um so, <laughs> so overall, uh this was a spectacular introduction to this new iteration of the Twilight Zone, and I'm I'm so excited to watch more. And I'm really excited to talk about Nightmare at 30,000 feet, because there was a lot of stuff in it that I was uh very tickled by, and I was so excited about it. So that's it. That's the first episode of the Twilight Zone 2019. Uh, the comedian. So, so excited. And I'm so excited to be talking about the show. And if you are a uh, recurring listener or if you're someone who has listened to me before or you're just discovering this podcast because of this uh, new iteration of the Twilight Zone, um, and if you like what you heard, you know, check out my other podcasts. Uh, I have The Obsessive Viewer, which is a movie and TV podcast. And I have uh, Tower Junkies, which is me and my friend Tiny talking about Stephen King and our love of the Dark Tower series. Uh, check all that out at obsessiveviewer.com slash podcasts. And yeah, I'll throw it to a pre-recorded outro where you'll have a bunch of information thrown at you in two minutes, uh, narrated by my friend Mike. So yeah. Uh yeah, so that, that'll do it for this episode. Next time, very soon, I'm gonna have an episode come up, uh, reviewing Nightmare at 30,000 feet. And then on the main feed of the podcast, uh, here in a few days, I will have a review of the original Twilight Zone episode 22, uh, hitting the feed later this week. So, 
Once again, thank you guys so much for listening, and I'm so excited that we are going to be all on this journey through the new Twilight Zone together. Uh, Let me know what you thought of this episode. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Anthology is edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. For a full archive of our episodes, go to anthologypod.com slash archive. You can also like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod and follow the show on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. If you enjoy the show, please take a couple minutes to leave us a rating and a quick review on Apple Podcasts. This is the easiest way to support what we do, and all it costs is a little bit of your time. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can make a PayPal donation at anthologypod.com slash donate or support us on Patreon for recurring donations and access to commentary tracks and B-roll audio recorded exclusively for patrons at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. Every donation goes toward paying the fees to keep the podcast running and is greatly appreciated. Official Anthology merch, including shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more, can be found in the Obsessive Viewer's Tee Public store. You can find a link to the store in the show notes of this episode and at anthologypod.com slash donate. Or you can simply search for Obsessive Viewer at teepublic.com. For information about the Obsessive Viewer's annual live event showcasing short horror films from local filmmakers, check out shocktoberinirvington.com. And for an archive of all our events, as well as news about potential future events, head over to obsessiveviewer.com slash live. For more podcast content, you can find our flagship movie and TV review and discussion show, The Obsessive Viewer Podcast, at obsessiveviewer.com, and on Twitter, at obsessiveviewer. You can also find Tower Junkies, a podcast where Matt and co-host Tiny share their love of all things Stephen King and his magnum opus, The Dark Tower series, over at TowerJunkiesPod.com and at TowerJunkiesPod on Twitter. And finally, check out The Secular Perspective, Tiny's side project podcast, which tackles current events and life's big questions from the perspective of secular hosts Chad and Amanda at TheSecularPerspective.com. Bumper music for this podcast comes courtesy of As Good As It Gets, which can be found at facebook.com slash asgoodasitgetsband. You can also find As Good As It Gets music on Spotify, Google Play, and iTunes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.